constructive, positive attitude or enthusiastic attitude really makes a difference for them. So. Consider your current scope of responsibilities and make sure that you are doing everything you can to make that uh, just very best delivery as possible. Creating this dynamic of parents saying we're not getting what we're paying at the same time, we are investing more and more and more. Welcome to ISS EDU Learn Ask Me Anything with Mike and Dana. Here we'll be exploring how international schools are innovating and transforming education around the world. From the latest trends and insights to stories from teachers and administrators, you'll get the inside look to the global education landscape. So join us as we explore what the future of international education has in store. Get ready to be inspired, challenge the status quo, and embrace a world of possibilities. Welcome back to ISS EDU Learn, Ask Me Anything with Mike and Dan, where we bring together experts and thought leaders from around the world to share insights and ideas that will help improve the education experience for students, teachers, administrators, and parents alike. I am Mike P., your favorite educator interviewer, and I am with Dr. Dana Spreggowatz, who is the Director of Learning, Research, and Outreach at ISS. Dana, how are you? I am funny and optimistic today, Mike. How about you? Oh, imagine it. <laughs> Before we get started, just a few housekeeping items. Don't forget to hit the like, subscribe, and leave us a review. We could be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please visit us on iss.edu slash events in order to see all of our upcoming professional development courses and also job fairs, whether they're online or in person. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, Elisa Herreras. Elisa, that's it, right? You did. That was perfect. Oh, yes. And now for my intro, Elisa Herreras is a highly accomplished multilingual career educator and coach with a passion for ongoing learning and consistent engagement in the work of equity, inclusion, and radical possibility. With over a decade of experience in the industry, she is dedicated to helping others achieve their professional goals and has extensive experience in career education and coaching, providing guidance and support to individuals from all walks of life. Beyond her work as an educator and a coach, Elisa is committed to ad advancing equity and inclusion in all areas of her work and strives to create opportunities for marginalized communities to succeed and thrive. Her passion for learning and advocacy make her a versatile and skilled professional with a unique perspective and a proven track record. Alisa, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Doing really good this Monday morning. It is Monday, isn't it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Did you want to tell our listeners where you are today? Yes, I am in Mexico City. I recently relocated here about three months ago. So finally in an apartment that's my own. Took a hard, long time to find a good place to rent, but happily settled into Mexico City right now. Um, I've been in Latin America for the last a little over a decade. What types of work are you doing? Uh, did you move out there for work? I did. So I um, was international teaching at a few different schools in Colombia. I was in Brazil before that, and I taught at a school. My last international teaching gig was in 2021. I was the DEI coordinator at a school in Colombia. And then I left to take a bit of a mental health break and also focus on consulting. I was doing some work consulting with other schools, which was really exciting to get to be in new communities and, and find new challenges and push my thinking around how to bring you know systems of liberation and, and inclusion in other schools and other communities. And then through my consulting work, I was contacted by Netflix and 
they won the battle of push and pull. I was hoping that they would hire me and let me stay in Colombia because Colombia is is home to me in many ways. Mm-hmm. My family's Colombian. I lived there for many years, but they needed me here in Mexico City because the LATAM headquarters is here in Mexico City. So I still continue to do my ed consulting work. I think being in schools is something I'll always be passionate about, but I also support our regional inclusion team here in Mexico City with Netflix. Okay. And are you currently working with young people? Um, I am mostly on a volunteer basis. So I still work with a few. So like I said, I still have my ed consulting business. And a mm-hmm. lot of that is with school leaders and with teachers. But I do, I think, honestly, it's what keeps me kind of grounded and keeps me hopeful. To be totally honest with y'all, it's easy to get a little bit nihilistic at times in this work. There are really big systems of oppression that we're up against. And to be frank, it's easy sometimes to try to let those systems kind of rob you of imagination and possibility. And I think staying around kids keeps me grounded, keeps me believing in radical possibility, keeps my imagination and my hope for the future. So I do volunteer work, just working with different organizations. And so that's how I stay around students. Although I was up really early this morning doing the Instagram scroll thing that one does and was watching a a teacher in their classroom. And I was like, I miss it. I miss it. So we'll see. And in your past or current with working with young people you find that they have a lot of trauma no Um, I mean I think kids are generally resilient I also think like I try to lean into the full human experience which includes some tough stuff right the full human experience includes joy and includes sadness it includes struggle and it includes triumph and I think with young people I mean trauma is also a word that is a word that exists on a spectrum. Like there's lots of different variants of what trauma can look like and, and, and how it can be experienced. I wouldn't say that that is how I would describe my experience with young people. I think I've seen young people and I've worked in a lot of different communities and a lot of different spaces. And I've seen different barriers and challenges that our young people are up against when they're having to make sense of who they are and figure out their identity. And sometimes that comes from systems of oppression. Sometimes that can come from family. Sometimes that can come from all of the different struggles of adolescence. But like I said, in that, inside of all of that, young people are incredibly resilient and stay hopeful in a way that I need to be around to stay hopeful. So I'm appreciative for that energy that I do think comes from young people. I have a question. So I think that when we get drawn in, this might be an assumption more than a question, but when we get drawn into certain kinds of work, it's because, especially in the world of education, it's because we're trying to be the person that we most needed when we were that age. How was that for you as a child growing up? I've said this a lot in my work. And so people who have attended sessions or facilitations that I've done, I talk a lot about like wanting to create schools where our children don't have to heal from childhoods that our children don't have to heal from. I was incredibly privileged in many ways. My rich, culturally uh, rich in love, my family, I was surrounded by community in terms of my family. My my mother immigrated from Colombia to the United States and my father from the Philippines. And very much it takes a village type mentality. You know, my grandparents were super present in my life supporting us. And part of that support looked like providing me and my older sister the opportunity to go to a private school, a very wealthy private school in Sacramento where I was raised. And I look back at my childhood and I know that so much of the hurt that I experienced was not intentional. I don't think my peers wanted to be racist intentionally. I don't think my teachers wanted to be racist intentionally, but in this work, impact matters far much more than intention does. And I spent a lot of my adult life learning to relove myself 
and learning to relove the parts of myself that I had convinced myself to survive in this very wide environment needed to be hidden or I needed to be ashamed of. And so I think in many ways, and I'm, one thing I am incredibly grateful for too, is that my family never shied away from tough conversations, right? They figured out how to help me understand things in a way that made sense to an eight-year-old or made sense to a 12-year-old in terms of me navigating kind of the racial dynamics of this predominantly white, wealthy school. And that being said, it was still really hard, um, constantly feeling like I didn't belong and constantly feeling gaslit from those feelings, right? There was moments of hurt from my peers and I could tell, you know, I have a couple of stories just popping up in my head right now, but I think what hurt more was the adults who as educators are responsible for the care of the young people in the, in their school communities made me feel like it was all in my head made me feel like I was inventing these experiences of mm -hmm. harm. And that continual gaslighting, I think, was more harmful than anything else. And so for me, like that is very much what drives the work that I do. Equipping the adults who are in these school communities not to be perfect, but to hold space for children who are having to navigate the systems of harm that we're still trying to dismantle. To hold space for the child who says, I don't feel seen in this community to create systems for the child who has gone through an education system that made them feel less than and really challenge those systems. So I am very much, or what you just shared very much resonates with me. I think my childhood very much speaks to what I do now as, as a professional. And, and again, that's such a privilege. Not many folks in this world, in the systems that we live within and the economic system that we all are trying to kind of navigate, have the opportunity to make a personal passion, a professional pursuit. So I feel great honor and great responsibility that I have that privilege. That's something that feels so personally important to me. Also, I have the the joy of making that my professional pursuit. That's amazing. And I'm wondering, so in your experience as a DEIJ consultant expert and someone who's dedicating so much of your life and time to this work, what are some of the most common misconceptions and challenges that you find people facing when they're engaging in this work and how do we overcome them? As an educational professional, you likely understand the positive and crucial role inclusion has on classroom culture. And you might be on the lookout for a community of like-minded educators. Senya International is that community. Senya is a nonprofit organization that advocates for individuals with disabilities and promotes inclusive educational practices across the globe. With a network of educators, families, students, and professionals, Senya offers connection, professional learning, and support for educators like you. Connect with the Senya community via our membership program or a local chapter in your area. Enjoy professional learning with the Senya community via our podcasts, online certification program, and in-person or virtual conferences. Support Senya through our sponsorships, awards, and scholarship program. So, what are you waiting for? For more information, head to our website, senyainternational.org. That's S-E-N-I-A international.org. And together, we continue to make a difference and fulfill our vision of living in an inclusive world. It's a big question, Dana. <laughs> it's a great question, though. How do I we mean, solve all the world's problems? <laughs> I think when it comes to like misconceptions, there's two that really stick into my head and I'll respond with the term scarcity and, and binaries. I think one, we are very deeply trapped in binaries in our understanding of humanity. And, and that across, I mean, I know that the term binary oftentimes 
is attached to understandings of identity, right? There's lots of conversations around like gender is not a binary, gender is a spectrum. But I also just in general, we are trapped in these ideas of one way or the other, black or white. And I think that we would be so to the part of the question of like, how do we overcome it? Like a deep understanding of how multiple truths can coexist would do so much to set us free. <laughs> like mm. there's so much freedom in being able to say that there are multiple truths that can coexist. You can be a beautiful community and have work to do when it comes to confronting white supremacy or anti-blackness. You can have the best intentions as an educator and at the same time know that maybe there's a knowledge gap when it comes to creating safe spaces for LGBTQ kids. If we move away from this notion of black and white, of good and bad, those binaries are so limiting. And like, I just, I know that my own learning of holding space for multiple truths has done, done so much to set me free. I also think that this idea of scarcity holds us back a lot. Opportunities to affirm humanity, opportunities to exist in all of the dignity that we deserve as humans are abundant and infinite. We just have to choose to believe that. And I think it's a hard choice to make sometimes because we have been so deeply indoctrinated into scarcity. But you know, humanity is not pie. If LGBTQ kids have more freedom and liberation, that doesn't mean that hetero, cis heteronormative kids are not going to have or going to have less. When brown and black kids see themselves represented in the curriculum, that does not equate to white kids seeing themselves less. And so I think as we move away from this idea of scarcity, I do believe in this possibility that we can love each other better. Our identities have been formed in many ways in systems of dehumanization, but they don't have to be. And there are so many infinite ways to exist. And we just have to believe that and believe and challenge that scarcity mindset. I think that those are two misconceptions that I, I come up against a lot. And a, just a general kind of struggle that I think in the work is moving folks fast past learning the language and doing the work. <laughs> I think one of the dangerous things that sometimes can happen in the DEI space is equipping folks with the language to discuss oppression, but not necessarily seeing that translate into the moves of power shifting, platform shifting, privilege questioning to dismantle some of the hierarchies that we're up against. And so one of the things that I often encourage with when I have talked to my clients is to have really honest and sometimes tense, but productive tension conversations about their metrics of change. Like is your metric for anti-racism that white folks can talk about anti-racism? We're not doing the work, right? Like your metric needs to be the experiences of black and brown folks people of color in your community? Is your metrics of LGBTQ, of gender, of disability change that folks who sit on a place of privilege have the language to talk about it? While it is an incredibly important first step to, to build common language with folks, and it's something that I do with a lot of the communities that I work in, that can't be our metric of change. And so I think that that isn't necessarily a myth, but I do think sometimes it's where communities get stuck. And I'm always working to be in that learning with them. Like, how do we move past talking the talk and into walking the walk? And in that realm of like walking the walk, having these tense conversations, a lot of what you're saying feels really hopeful for the future, for the changes that can happen and, and what that is for young people when they become adults. So how do you envision young people applying the skills that they learn through inclusion and identity work in their adult lives? Yeah, I mean, I think that's so much of it is like so much of what you learn when you are engaging in inclusion practices, when you are engaging in, in social justice work are the types of leaders that the world really needs right now in terms of 
flexibility, empathy, holding space for multiple truths, not to repeat myself. I think what I've seen is having conversations with young people about systems and sustainability is an immediate way that they have seen the learning that we've done around social justice apply in solutions that they're working on as young people and adults. I designed a course at my old school and, and was the program lead for it called Innovation for Social Change. And I remember the first few years, like the students really struggled and I struggled as a recovering perfectionist and a forever Virgo, you know, I'm a people pleaser and I want everyone to be happy. And I struggled seeing my students struggle, but I stuck with my guns around like, and the struggle was they wanted to get to the project. They're like, I have this idea and I want to do the project. And I really forced us to slow down and do some really deep identity work and do some really deep systems thinking work. And I grounded that conversation in sustainability and building solutions that don't require you to be the hero, that don't require you to be in the center, that don't require you to even you know, have to lead all the time. And I think that those are the types of leaders that we need moving forward. Leaders that can equip teams to be capable and solution-driven without them always having to be in the front of it. And I think that that type of sustainability learning as kind of the underscore foundation of these conversations that we were having about social justice really helped them see the connections that they can make in the future, whether they were applying it to like who they were going to be as architects or who they were going to be as, you know, doctors and listening to their patients and who they were going to be as, you know, whatever the case may be. What I tried to do was, was help them make the connections between this isn't just about doing the right thing for humanity, which it absolutely is, but it is also about creating solutions that can thrive without you always having to be there fixing them, right? The, the sustainability conversation, I think, was really helpful. Thank you so much, Elisa, for that. Very insightful. So I have my next question. I'm sure you come across a multiple magnitude of type of challenges, especially in this type of work. I feel like none of the work is probably the same. and <laughs> probably mm. come across different types of situations and scenarios all the time. So uh, how do you address the unique challenges that comes with linking inclusion and identity work to practical applications outside of the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I'm building my community has been incredibly important to that. It's easy to kind of get siloed into this work. And like I said, I don't want to pretend that I haven't struggled with experiences of like nihilism, like what's it all for? The problems are so big. So I have a two-part answer to this question. One is just being really intentional about who are my people and like my community and being surrounded by folks who are doing this work in different ways. And I have folks that I am connected to who are community organizers, who are activists, who are teachers, who all kinds of different ways that folks are showing up in radical love for their community and seeing what that looks like in different landscapes, it not only motivates me, but also helps me see different versions of practical application, you know, not living just in my siloed worlds, but connecting with folks who are doing this work in different places. And I think just making the intentional, like saying the quiet part out loud. I think sometimes there is this sort of shame with associated when it comes to unpacking our bias or unpacking where we might have knowledge gaps. But if we simply begin by acknowledging that we exist in systems that consistently ask us to compromise parts of our own humanity or force us into hierarchies or binary notions of identity, and like we place the blame on the system, it lessens the shame. And when we lessen the shame, we can have more upfront conversations because I, I honestly believe there's direct correlations between projects and jobs and team building and all kinds of different things 
that are more effective and more efficient when somebody has done the deep identity work, the social justice work, but maybe somebody doesn't want to talk about it because they don't want to admit that they had a bias or they didn't want to admit that somebody had to kind of call them in and say, hey, you're missing the mark on this. And so I think if we get more comfortable just saying the quiet part out loud and saying, hey, so when I was working on this project, here were some of the knowledge gaps that I had. Here's how my privilege kept me from seeing these things. And here's how sitting deeply in a conversation with perspectives different than mine or operating from a place of curiosity or taking a backseat when I know that I didn't need to be at the center of power in these decision-making conversations really helped us create better solutions. And so I just think it's it's about more transparent communication and we'll be able to be, see all that practicality pretty easily. I, but we just got to move away from that kind of shame. And I have it too. You know, like there are times where I've worked on a project and halfway through someone has had to call me in and be like, hey, Alisa, I think we might want to pause and like re reflect on where we're going on this because here's some perspectives that might be missed. And then later on when the project is a success, sometimes it is hard for me to share that moment where like part of the success was me having to stop and do some social justice based, some humanity based, some inclusion based, some liberation based work on myself. But I know that it is, it's so fundamental. Dana, did you have a last question? No, I don't think, I was trying to think of like what my next question would be. And I'm just processing a lot of what you said because I enjoy listening to you so much. And one of the things that you said that really resonated with me was about radical possibility and the radical possibility of the future of our schools. And I'm wondering, so in a dream world, let's say we could flip a switch, the radical possibility, what does that look like tomorrow? or whenever it happens? I think it looks, I mean, when I've seen it in glimpses, Dana, and I have, and I'm so grateful for that. This sounds like a very cheesy answer, but I'll unpack it to hopefully make it less cheesy. It looks like joy. And I know that that sounds cheesy, but when I've seen it in glimpses, it is such a joyful celebration of culture. It is a joyful celebration of identity. It looks like people being able to show up exactly who they are without having to question parts of who they are and and just be in it and celebrate it and laugh. Like again, so cheesy, but when I've seen it in glimpses, it sounds like laughter. It sounds like folks just, I think being in this work and also being in this work as a woman of color, there's this emotional labor that comes with it. And where I have seen the fruits of this labor is when I am just experiencing myself in a joyful way where I'm not having to educate anybody on my identity. I'm not having to explain to people why I show up the way that I do. I just get to do that. And people, you know, engage with curiosity. I think that that's a part of it too. It's like radical possibility includes curiosity. Like we can continue. It's not moving towards a homogeneous society. Of course not, right? It's not moving towards these notions of like, we're all the same. No, it's, wow, we are so different. And how cool is that? And let's be curious about each other and experience each other's joy in all of the different ways that we show up. I think, like I said, like in my classroom, it was when, and I didn't always do this, of course not, but when I successfully created spaces for kids to just be themselves, that felt like liberation. That felt like radical possibility come to life. So it's what I hold on to. It's what I hope for. It's also what I encourage folks in this work to hold on to. Sometimes we get lost in the dismantling part of this work, which please don't get me wrong, is an essential part of it. We got to dismantle white supremacy. We got to dismantle patriarchy. We got to look at cis heteronormativity and say, no, we got to go. And we got to challenge and critique 
these systems. And at the same time, we have to spend energy creating new systems, creating new possibilities. And so for me, you know, finding that balance between the dismantling and sitting in this question that you've asked, which is what does it look like when we've accomplished it, is how I've, you know, stayed in this work. Beautifully said, Elisa. By chance, are you an author? I am not an author by publication. I used to write. <laughs> I mean, I used to want to be a journalist. I went to school. I got my degree was in journalism. I think I'm a frustrated author. <laughs> I love storytelling. I'll tell you that. I'm a storyteller. I grew up in a family of storytellers. I was just recently in the Philippines with my 94-year-old grandfather, and I could sit and listen to him tell stories forever. I used to write for a couple of different online publications, and I think that's how I found my way into the literature classroom. I was a literature teacher for many years because I do believe in the power of stories. Well, if you want to talk more about getting a book published, let me know because <laughs> I might be able to connect you with a few people. <laughs> because Maybe someday. Your voice needs to be heard more and more. <laughs> And Elisa, since you're so into literature, is there any books, resources, online publications that you would like our listeners to kind of check out? Uh, yeah, great question. I just started rereading teaching, well, I, well, two books. I finished just like a couple weeks ago, about a month ago, my second read of a book called We Do This Till We're Free or We Do This Till We Free Us. It's a nonfiction, but it's a collection of memoirs and essays. And I think it it's interviews that really reflect on what this work, this deep, as the author, Miriam Cave talks about it, like the work of abolition. And it's just such a beautiful collection of stories. And like I said, part of like, to your question earlier, Mike, around connecting to the practicality of this work, that book was really beautiful for me because I saw so many different stories and so many different applications. And then I'm going through a, a Baldwin phase, <laughs> rereading some Baldwin works. Anything James? For, yes, James. <laughs> Jimmy Baldwin, anything from him. I do think that the density of his work requires me to read it multiple times. And every time I get it, read something, I get something new. So pretty much any book from him, I'm halfway through the fire next time right now, but all of his work is really good. Okay. But yeah, I'm halfway through the fire next time. I highly recommend it. If you have to read it three or four times to really let it sit with you, don't worry. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, and um, I know we're coming to an end here. Just wanted for you to take this time. If there's anything else, any advice that you wanted to share, also how does our listeners get in contact with you? Maybe wanted your consultant. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Pereras Elisa at Pereras Elisa. So that's my last name and my first name. And I also have a webpage that you can find a little bit about more work, some of the clients that I've worked with, which is my first name and my last name, elisapereras.org. And build your community. That's my biggest piece of advice. I am incredibly grateful. ISS has introduced me to parts of my community, the work that I've done. I like this. I heard a quote once of like, I don't need to be self-made. I'm, I'm happy to be community made. And I really, that really resonated with me because I, I'm not self-made. I'm so deeply community made from my family to the folks that I have with me now that both encourage me and also hold me to account. Build your community. That's my biggest piece of advice. I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, now I'm trying to think of my community, community baby. I don't know. I have, to, <laughs> I have to take some things into consideration. But thank you so much, Elisa, for your time today. Thank you, Dana, my co-host, for being here with me. Thank you, Molly Bay, for always being a great spectator here with us. And Elisa, thank you for your time and your expertise. 
So in today's episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with Elisa, a multilingual career educator and coach with a passion for ongoing learning and consistent engagement in the work of equity, inclusion, and radical possibility. Elisa has shared insights on inclusion and identity. She highlighted the importance of healing traditions, practical applications, and ongoing learning for creating a more inclusive and equitable society. Through her work as a DEIJ consultant, Elisa has seen firsthand the transformative power of inclusion and identity work, and she remains committed to empowering young people to contribute to community care and collective action in their adult lives. We're grateful for the knowledge and expertise that Elisa has shared with us today, and we hope that this conversation has inspired you to explore new ways of engaging in the work of equity and inclusion. Thank you for joining us. Until our next episode, where we continue to explore ways to improve the education experience for us all. Until next time, my fellow educators, bye-bye.